Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Democrats in a bit of a panic, my friends, after uh, the election results came in last night. Mr. Ossoff did not pull it off, unable to defeat Karen Handel. Sixth District of uh, Georgia uh, stays Republican, despite uh, knocking on, as the Democrats right here in the uh, Daily Beast, 500,000 doors, hiring 100 staffers, recruiting 12,000 active volunteers, $11 million on ads, uh, and not enough. Not enough. Ten, tens of millions of dollars spent in this congressional race overall, and a little bit of a of a, a taste of panic, I think, for the Democrats. They won't talk about it. It's it's well, some of them will. Here we got. I mentioned this piece in Daily Beast that Democrats have no idea how to win in the age of Trump. I I want to unpack that a bit with you now. Thank you for joining me, Team Buck, in in the Freedom Hut as always. But there there is a lot here. Now, first, be, before I get into what's real, let's deal with what's overhyped or overstated yeah this is just one congressional race now certainly if the democrats had won this thing we would be hearing about how this was the match this was the spark that would lead to a a conflagration for the resistance the anti-trump resistance this was the beginning of the turning of the tide this was the moment that trumpism began to recede. That's the, those were the stories. I'm sure, in fact, there were many uh, columnists and editorialists and others who already had those columns written. Ready to go, just in case Ossoff were to win after spending $23 million. Now, there's some fascinating dynamics at, at the local level of this race. I'll try to bring in some of those during the show. And I should also note before I give you my sense of why the Democrats are in a little bit of a panic right now, um, whether they want to admit it or not, we are going to talk. We're going to have a terrorism, uh, a terrorism update on that Brussels bomber. Also, a guy yelled, uh, quote, according to CNN, something in Arabic uh, while stabbing a police officer in the neck in Minnesota. You have uh, ISIS blowing up the most uh, prominent mosque in Mosul implications of that. Uh, we got we got a lot of other things that I want to get into, but this hour we we do need to we do need to uh, unpack and break apart some of what's gone on the last twenty four hours as those results came in. I, I could see that there were various networks, MSNBC among them, CNN, uh, where they were prepared to go all night. They thought this would be closer than it was, and so they were going to have special coverage going. All this money poured into the into the race. Keep in mind, guy doesn't even live in the district. His money's coming from mostly out of state and the most liberal parts of the country. A candidate with no particular experience, skill, or expertise. 
but looks the part, sounds the part, and he's kind of a, a, a Pelosi progressive, so why not? Let's let's just give it a shot. And and they decided to make a stand here. Now, if they had won, we would be hearing, as I said, that this was momentous. This was a because they lost. Well, it's this is just another congressional race. It's a a, a district that Trump carried, although not by all that much. Uh, it's a it is a district that leans Republican. Um, and you're hearing all the all the after action reporting on this is meant to minimize. It's meant to make it clear that this doesn't really mean all that much, that the Democrats are 0 for 4 in special elections. Doesn't sound very good. It's not what they it's not the position they certainly want to be in. But there are some, I think, who have enough honesty with themselves and with the direction of their party to say that this is a wake-up call because it shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't be this hard for Democrats to win. They have been telling the American people with the help of a relentless, rabidly anti-Trump media, they have been telling the American people for months that Trump is a constitution destroyer, that he's a bigot, that he is a racist, that he is a fascist, that we're going to get drawn into unnecessary wars because of his diplomacy, that he's a Russian stooge, that he is a traitor, that he's a... I can't even keep up with all of the allegations. Now, to progressives who live in New York City, where I'm coming to you live right now, but it's the reality of this uh, this town... And California, you know, the the coastal elites, this is what they want to read. This is what they want to see and hear night in and night out. And so it's good for ratings. So the media keeps doing it. But here's the problem. You can't win the election with just those super blue parts of the country. And if we're going to look at how the country looks and feels right now, which, of course, the media doesn't do by and large. But if we're going to take take stock for just a moment of. The reality of our current situation. You know what we find out? It's not that it's not that bad. And I don't mean it's not that bad for those of you who are Trump supporters, Trump voters. As you know, I've said before, I voted for Trump. I supported him in the general openly. But I'm not even talking about from the perspective of somebody who is hopeful for Trump's agenda, thinks that there's some great stuff that could happen from his tax reform, from health care, which we're getting more details about this week. I'm talking about those who are persuadable, independents, undecided, those who may or may not show up and vote in critical parts of the country where there's a real competition, right? In, in uh, Nancy Pelosi's home district, Marin County, it, it, in California, doesn't really matter what people think because they're going to elect Democrats and those votes are all going Democrat and who cares, right? From the perspective of the midterms, doesn't really matter there, but in places where people are paying attention and might vote or might not and could vote either way, the states that Trump won, places like Wisconsin and Ohio and Pennsylvania, they've been told now for so many months that the country is, oh, it's terrible, it's going, do you you know about Trump's position on the travel ban? I mean, unless you live in a major city and get most of your information from the New York Times, Daily Coast, and Rachel Maddow, you you don't really care all that much about the travel ban. It doesn't affect you. It affects, in fact, very few people, period. But they made such a huge deal out of it. And you're like, ah, that's 
doesn't doesn't hurt my life, doesn't change things one way or the other, and sounds to me like at least Trump's trying to do something about terrorism instead of denying its existence, saying it's more of a law enforcement problem, or maybe if we just had different foreign policy, we wouldn't have all this terrorism stuff. That's the Democrat view. But for people who look at this and aren't obsessed with the day in and day out of partisan politics, but they're just trying to be aware of what's going on uh, at the national level, picking up what they can by by every objective measure. Life under Trump, it's not bad. What's the big problem? Like I said, the Russia thing is a circus. Unless you live in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Boston, unless you're one of these blue, blue Democrat strongholds. You've been seeing headlines, reading all this terrible stuff, and you're like, well, what is all this? For what? Of all these hearings, by the way, you know, the only people who watch these hearings are members of the media and people that are obsessed with whatever the media is saying about the hearings, but you know, by and large, people have other things to do. Look at where the Dow is right now. Look at where your 401k is. Look at the unemployment rate. Look, look, look at business hiring and business... Uh, sentiment and where business leaders are and the country's just it's not in a bad place right now relative to where it was when obama was the president right i mean this is just the reality there's no case to be made that things are worse now than they were when obama was president but the media is acting like the country is in a is in a state of despair because they're in a state of despair and you saw it and i know that photo went viral from cnn and I, I'm, I know all of those analysts have done uh, on-air hits with the, the ones you see on TV there, uh, ones you see on, on the screen in, uh, at one time or another. And what's amazing to me is, is, is in that photo, by the way, uh, you see CNN analysts who clearly, um, who clearly are unhappy at what's going on. And yet these would all be objective, nonpartisan analysts. That's the way that they would chiron them on TV. That's how they would tell you about them. They, they all look so sad. They all have these looks on their faces like, how, how could this have happened to us? Um, and yet, here we are. It's fine unless you work in media. It's fine unless you believe that Hillary had the election stolen from her. It's things just aren't that bad. And that then brings me to the panic. What exactly do Democrats offer? What's the counter narrative? The truth, the reality of the counter narrative for the Democrat side of the aisle is that Trump is awful, Trump is destroying America, Trump is a racist, a bigot, etc., all, all that stuff. But it's not that Trump has made your life worse. It's not that Trump has made health care worse or that they can't point to anything right now. Now, in a sense, maybe the Republicans in the Congress and, and their inability to get stuff done has uh, prevented some of the more strident criticisms that could come along from the Democrat Party. Maybe they're waiting for that opportunity. But here's the bottom line. Without getting, if we're going to take national implications from a local election, which is what a congressional election or not a local election, but you know one district, it's that what they've been telling us the the disparity here is between the America that the media portrays under a Trump presidency 
and how this was supposed to be a referendum on Trump. Now that, of course, the Republican Karen Handel won, it's not that it's it's just that, you know, they're still figuring it out. Right. But I mean, make no mistake. They put everything they could into this. I mean, this, this they made this a big effort. This was not a, a, a gimme. This was not left to the Republicans to just figure out. So. The disparity here is between the the America that the media talks about and the America that most people who live here are dealing with day to day, who aren't going to vote Democrat no matter what, and don't view the leftist uh, newspapers and various news channels as infallible guardians of the republic and all that. But for for normal normal folks just going about their day to day, they're being told all the time that Trump is so terrible, and they're like, you know. I'm kind of all right with in America with uh, a more straightforward, no nonsense swagger and and patriotism. You know that 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 brand that part of the Republican Party and that part of Donald Trump and Trumpism. I, I kind of like that. And in terms of what affects me day to day, where is the where is the big loss? What's the problem? Now. It's not like the the Democrats have been pushing for great policy solutions or answers to problems since Trump was elected. They focus so much energy on Russia. They're trying so hard to use the law to be litigious, to just be little lawsuit, uh, lawsuit filing, bureaucratic uh, underminers, you know, people that undermine the presidency. That. Normal people see this and they think, "Why would I? Why would I put the Democrats in charge? What's what are they? What are they offering me other than a lot of, by the way, uh, cultural warfare talk or culture war talk, um, which is the one place, by the way, that Trumpism receives the most support. People don't like being told that they have to accept thirty-seven different genders, or people don't like that." Not, at least not a majority of the American people. And so on the issue of a more traditional American culture, Trump is doing well. And what gets the media so upset, as I mentioned, the travel ban and, you know, the, the latest status of trans rights and these issues, that that actually doesn't move the needle in a lot of America. And they still haven't figured this out. So the, the takeaway I give you from this is that they're, the media right now, the Democrat Party, same thing, are freaked out because they put all they could into this race, they couldn't win it, and they don't know how they're going to win the midterms because the message that they've been running with is, what, this Trump-Russia stuff? That's just not enough. That's not enough to normal people. Normal people don't care. Special thanks to the president of the United States of America. referendum on Trump, I got to say, it looks pretty good for Trump right now. The the fact that this president has the support that he does, despite all the negative media coverage, the the really slanderous uh, 
news stories that have been run on a constant loop about about the president of the United States and his some of his top advisors. And uh, it, it's it's astonishing, isn't it? The, the disconnect, the same disconnect with the media that led to their enormous surprise at uh, Trump's victory existed. They've learned nothing. It still exists. This is, I think, one of the important takeaways from the last 24 hours. They haven't changed. They're not uh, deciding to look anew at what what exactly is the appeal of Donald Trump? Look, I even better question. What is the what is the appeal of the Republican Party right now? Not getting a ton done, but by the same token, things aren't that bad. Things are actually pretty good. Things are good compared to what they were a year ago. And in a lot of ways, I think people would say things are a little better. So why wouldn't they vote Republican under under those circumstances? You know, they have a president that they feel speaks more freely and off the cuff. Uh, doesn't have a uh, a particular attachment to international opinion or uh, multilateralism with all the different countries, particularly countries that the U.S. has had a difficult relationship with or even enemy states, uh, doesn't want to stretch, uh, have an outstretched hand to all of them. And it's just a different approach, but the approach resonates. Media still doesn't want to understand why the approach resonates. And in fact, they'd rather blame anything. I mean, they'd rather blame blame the weather even. Steve, let me ask you one last question on this. If there was a turnout effect from the bad weather today in the district, does that have any partisan implications that you could foresee in terms of what was expected for same-day, election day voting yeah. uh, in here rather than the early vote? Well, and potentially. It all depends where it is. This is anecdotal. Yeah. Did the bad weather have partisan implications in the special election? Folks, you can't make this stuff up. This is this is where the Democrats are now. Um, I, like I said, they they are downplaying the importance of this election, which is not that important in the grand scheme of things. But if they are reading the tea leaves, if you're trying to anticipate where the country will be in the midterms, I, I think a, a moment of self-reflection, a moment of honesty with the Democrats would bring them to they haven't learned anything yet. They're, they're, they've learned nothing new. And this this Russia stuff is I don't think going to have the implications in the midterms at all that they do. Right. What you're not going to vote for your local Republican congressman because of uh, the lack of any actual evidence of anyone in the Trump administration doing anything illegal with regard to Russia and election hacking. Just doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, By the way, there's a a couple of anecdotal things about the specifics of the election with Ossoff and Handel that I want to get into um, I took them from social media. Uh, I can't independently verify their veracity, but I do think there are insights contained in them anyway. So I think we'll get into some of that. And then we'll uh, talk about the various terrorist incidents in the last few days. We've got updates on all those and much more. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. 
Welcome back, team. Uh, a little more on this congressional race. As you know, uh, John Ossoff lost. Karen Handel won. Handel with 51% of the vote to Ossoff's 48%, or basically Handel at 52 and Ossoff at 48. Um, so Ossoff just couldn't handle it. I know the, the wordplay last night on Twitter and on Facebook was just out of control with with the, uh, with Ossoff and... Uh, and handle and everything else. Um, I see a bunch of calls coming. I want to take them and then share with you what I believe to be some on the ground perception of of what uh, what happened there, uh, based on social media accounts that uh, I've come across. If they're not right, they're at least interesting. I mean, if they're not authentic, they're at least interesting versions of events. You know that that raise some questions or raise some ideas that I think are worth our time anyway. But I'm pretty sure they're real. Stuff always to know, and uh, well, at least one of them I'm not sure it's real. The other one seems pretty darn real, but I'll get to that in a second. Take your calls first. Uh, Bradley in Phoenix on KOY. What's up, Bradley? Well, Buck, uh, it's a pleasure talking to you, and uh, you stole a part of my thunder from your last segment, and I wanted to talk about the Ossoff loss, and on top of that, you had uh, Montana and Kansas with the other two uh, representatives there. I, I would disagree with you to some extent. This isn't a ringing endorsement of Trump where the, the people of the Georgia 6 are putting their arms around Donald Trump. But what I would say is this is a, a uh, rebuke of everything that has been over the last eight years. It was... Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me for the last eight years. I mean, who do you point your finger at? So I think what we're seeing as as we are moving forward is the American people are more sophisticated now and are paying attention to politics now more than they were eight years ago. The old, you know, look in my left hand, don't, you know, like a magician, don't pay attention to what's in my left, not what's in my right. I think we're more sophisticated now, and we're seeing through the traditional liberal media. Well, Bradley, I mean, you're certainly entitled to think that people are more sophisticated in their in their uh, following of politics now than were eight years ago. I, I don't know what you'd base that, though, on other than just your personal perception, which is as valid as anyone else's, right? That's That's your opinion. I'm not sure that you could find any data to support that per se. Uh, and also on your point that I said, I didn't say it's a ringing endorsement of Trump. I said people have been hearing for so many months how terrible Trump is, and that's all Democrats have offered. So that's not a compelling reason to vote for a Democrat, right? So that's not the same as saying that Trump is amazing. I'm just saying that if you were somebody who was persuadable in this district, if you're somebody who might have gone either way or might have voted or not voted, what do the Democrats give you to be excited about? And and, and I will, by the way, give a little more uh, of a, a sense of what it was like on the ground in the six, based on what I've been what I've been reading. Obviously, I don't live uh, just outside of Atlanta, but um, I'll, I'll give a sense of that in a second. You you live just two blocks from it, just like John Ossoff. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't live in the district just like the guy running for the running for the seat doesn't live in the district. But it didn't stop him and all this money pouring in from out of state. But Bradley, thank you for calling in from Phoenix. I appreciate it. Bob in Virginia on WPTI. What's up, Bob? Yes, sir. Um, I, my perception is uh, I think the Republicans laid low. Everybody is starting to you know, tune it up a bit and getting smarter. And uh, 
I don't think Donald had any influence here. I think it's us Republicans and conservatives are fed up with the baloney, and we got out of the House and said, hey, enough of this garbage. Uh, we're tired of this, this, this phony Russian thing, everything. It's time for us to move on and kick this economy into gear. And I think if we get health care through next week, I think, you know, the market's going to go nuts. So I think, you know, we are getting educated, but uh, I think us Republicans and conservatives are starting to go, hey, we're on the same team for a change, instead of throwing semantics at each other and you're saying, well, you're this and that. I think we're, we're, we're going forward and, uh, you know, moving on. I think I, I like what I see now. I really I'm, I'm getting pumped already. And I really don't care, really, next till next year anyway. But I'm starting to get pumped. Uh, I think that the the, the childishness uh, and the scaremongering from Democrats has had a unifying effect on the right. I say it all the time. They they keep pushing me further and further into the Trump bunker. You know, every every time I see another uh, columnist writing that that Trump has committed treason and it's just a matter of time before he's marched out of the White House in handcuffs or something along those lines, I'm just like, you know what? These people are just not serious. And keep in mind, I'm talking about you know, Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC. I mean, th- th- these are the places where the Trump-Russia collusion story gets so much traction. Um, but to a, to a normal person, they're just like, what, what does this even mean? If they had something to tell me at this point, wouldn't they just tell me instead of raising questions and telling me at some point maybe there'll be something they can say. So, you know, I, I think people see through that. But also the, the the six, what happened there is indicative of a larger, uh, Bob, a larger arrogance in the Democrat Party that with the media's help and enough money, they can just pick off a district somewhere with somebody who's a complete empty suit, just just an empty suit, looks the part, sounds the part of a, you know, young Democrat progressive. Uh, but people don't really care. You know, that that's not enough. It's enough if you live in Malibu. It's enough if you live in Manhattan. But if you live in the six, you're like, why not vote for the vote for somebody who's actually been working in local politics and has some sense of the issues instead of this guy Ossoff, who is a complete construct. It was just basically a guy who lived a couple of blocks away. But, you know, it's not a couple of blocks. Yeah, it's a few miles. It's a few miles. I love it. I mean, that's the thing. It's not even that he was it's they, they couldn't even pick somebody in the district that they were trying to pick off and essentially remote control candidate from California. That's what they were doing here. Bob, thanks for calling in on from Virginia. Good to have you, sir. I'll take a few more, and then I'll, I'll give you these uh, this uh, some some astute analysis that I came across today. You know, a lot a lot of stuff out there. Everyone's everyone's got a everyone in the political sphere's got opinions on this, but um, there are two things that really struck me, and one is from what I believe to be a Democrat voter, and one is from I'm not really sure. I think a Republican, but uh, David in Delaware on the iHeart app. What's up, sir? Shield tie, Buck. Shield tie. How do you give Jamaboy Boy thirty million dollars? For an election, mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't really make much sense, especially when his opponent, when let's be honest, for her to be a congressional seat like that, she's really punching like below her weight class. She probably ran for governor or even a senator senator seat. Well, I think they believe that with enough media attention and enough uh, enough of the party apparatus in play. That they could, they they wanted to create a story here, right? This was all. This was the political equivalent of, of of building a a, a pop star, right? This was the equivalent of we've got somebody that kind of looks the way we need the person to look. We'll just throw a lot of attention at them, and we will make them into something. 
And it didn't work, despite all the money and all the effort and media attention and everything else. So, and people say, oh, well, in the initial... Uh, the initial primary, uh, you know, he came out of it and, and it looked like it was competitive and close. Well, yeah, but there were so many people in that one. So, um, wait, how many times they try this? I mean, they tried it with Anthony Weiner. I mean, how many, how many different, how many different people are they going to try to push forward, and for them just to fall flat in their face? You know, ten years down the road, you're and scandal. I mean, let's be honest here. Like, when are they going to wise up and, and be like, maybe we're the problem? I don't know. I don't know if they're going to wise up. Uh, I think there is a bit of denialism with the Democrats right now about the situation they will find themselves in in the midterms, because they can tell everyone that the country's terrible and Trump is a bigot and Trump is a racist. But if you think Trump is a racist and a bigot, you you wouldn't you didn't vote for him. You voted for Hillary in the first place. Uh, And and so it doesn't really matter. Right. I mean, you're already if you believe that if you believe that now, you believed it a year ago. So repeating it every day doesn't change anyone's mind about anything. And I think people who do care about the country and just want to see the economy do better and want to see this country uh, on the right track are seeing the way that all this is portrayed. And they're just like, this is nonsense. That They see the game for what it is, David. And and that's, uh, I think, an, an essential part of all this. Thank you very much for for calling in. So I wanted to get to this. And if you're I know we've got a lot of lines lit. If you, if you want to... Uh, We can continue with this after the break, but I did want to get to this first. So this is a gentleman named named Will Collier, um, who I believe lives in Atlanta, Georgia. I found some of the people that I know and follow in media shared a a uh, an an analysis tweet storm from him that I wanted to share with you all now. So he said it's time for some post runoff game. But I don't know, Mr. Collier. I'm just I, I came across his analysis of the election. I thought this was interesting. It's time because because he lives in the district or claims to live in the district. And I, I, no reason to believe he doesn't. But, you know, I, I don't know. This guy's not a verified Twitter account. So just to be clear. Uh, but he, he writes, it's time for some post runoff game uh, gaming theory from an actual resident of Georgia's sixth. If you lived in the six, you were bombarded by flyers, signs, ads, door knockers. And most of all. Phone calls. At least once a day, and usually more than once, the phone would ring from an out-of-state area code. First it was robocalls, then the last couple of weeks, call centers. They weren't targeted. They were calling everybody every day. And they wouldn't take, uh, you know, stop calling me for an answer. Trust me on this. Uh, Now imagine for a moment that the roles in the 2016 election were reversed and Hillary had nominated a Bay Area Democrat for her cabinet. California would have called the special election and imagine millions of dollars uh, and tons of vicious social media rhetoric flowing out of, oh, say, Georgia to the Republican candidate for that race. How do you think Californians would have reacted to that? And then he writes, self-awareness not being a notable lefty trait at the best of times. Uh, Today, the left coast is declaring Georgia's sixth a mass Klan meeting. That'll go over well here in 18 months, dudes. You should definitely keep that up. Uh, So... I think, you know, this guy, I think that's a very interesting point here about how, and I mean, I've read similar things elsewhere, but this guy really had a, had a good layout um, of, of what it was like living in this district that, uh, you know, they're bombarded with all this stuff. It's all out of state. It's all so astroturf and fabricated and, and it's such a, a, a media narrative in the making and people, I'm sure, just got sick of it and got annoyed with it. They're like, we want this to stop. We, we don't want our congressional race to become some kind of national, again, some national circus. We just we just want to be able to vote for a candidate and 
have that person represent us in the Congress, and that that's all. But all the outside money, I mean, you know, you've got people living in Georgia who are being told to vote for a candidate whose best buddies and, and fundraisers and, and bundlers and all the money and stuff is coming in from L.A., San Francisco, New York, Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, probably. That that does, that's not a good look. So that was one uh, that was one thing I came across that I found interesting. Then you had another another guy who now I did I was able to check and see that uh, John Ossoff did visit a mosque on Friday, and I found this uh, th- this was from an, an individual who was just writing on his own social media page. This got shared into my feed. He wrote that John Ossoff came to my mosque Friday. He didn't try to win our vote. He just had a professional camera crew taking pics of him with uh, hijabis, meaning women who are wearing a hijab. Um, He didn't explain his policies, just that we should have our phones out already before we approach him for pics to expedite the process. He also came into our mosque. This guy calls himself, by the way, he calls himself Falafel Dad is, is his Twitter handle. He also came into our mosque with two huge bodyguards who were very clear with mosque-goers about how we were allowed to approach John Ossoff. He didn't promise to stand against legislation, uh, which makes nonviolent resistance of Israeli goods and services illegal. This guy's, I can, from what I can see, clearly it looks like a Democrat, I mean, from what he's writing here. He didn't promise to stand with gra- uh, grassroots working against gentrification. He basically told us two things. Vote for me because Trump and have your phones out for picks because we only have five minutes left. Now, I, th- again, this just re- I'm sure this is true because it sounds so true. <laughs> I mean, meaning that I, I can't verify, you know, I don't know if there's a verified Twitter account or not, but I saw this. And I, and I, there was a visit to a mosque on Friday and this came across my feed. And everything that you think about Ossoff seems to be encapsulated in some of this. It was all from the outside. It was all for show. It was about the photos, and the media coverage, everything else. And, you know, they they were able to construct a or they're able to, to pull together a narrative and win a national election with uh, with Barack Obama based on the story and based on media hype, largely not based on record. But that's a difficult thing to duplicate in, in other races. And it definitely didn't work here. All right, I see a lot of lines to lit. We will uh, take some calls. We also got to talk na- national security is going to dominate our conversation coming up in the next hour. Uh, talking about what's going on with the uh, campaign to take back Mosul, uh, ISIS's ideology. We'll get into a bit of that. Also, updates on the ter- apparent terrorist attack in Minnesota. Yelled, quote, something in Arabic, end quote. I'm sure some of you are probably saying out loud what he said because we all know. But anyway. Well, the bigger picture to me is that, that the 2018 congressional elections are a year and a half away, and a million things can happen that can change the picture. But for Democrats, obviously, it's pretty depressing. That's the word I've seen on Twitter. <laughs> yes, uh, more it, than sh- any it should other be. It, sh- it, it should be. That's Larry Sabato over at CNN. It should be pretty depressing. 20, 20 million plus bucks just for nothing. Uh, Jude in Mississippi on WBUV. What's up, sir? Hey, Buck. Uh, I, I just kind of wanted to tie a little bit together here. You know, they had the election last night, and I'm I'm really glad that the, the Republican won. 
But what I, I wanted to point out was kind of what's happened is over the last year, you know, me and you, we've, we've known this media bias for, for a long time, but most of the general American public didn't, didn't know. They, they don't pay that close of attention to it. But what I think's happened over the past year is it's become so apparent to everyone that the media from not only Hillary's emails, but the fact that it was glaringly obvious how much the media hated Trump and, you know, during the campaign and everything else, that I think everybody is, is glued into that now. And guess what? They give the media no credence whatsoever. They don't give the newspaper much credence. I mean, they they really uh, go through it and only accept uh, what they can they can prove from other sources. Yeah, you know, so, I think, Jude, that there's, the, the media still sneers at people who who believe yeah. who believe Trump or who who go along with Trump when he says things like fake news or even very fake news about CNN. But there has been fake news. There's been a lot of it, and there's clearly an agenda. And those who cling to this outdated model of big J journalism that is nonpartisan, that is straight down the middle, and that isn't pushing an agenda are fooling themselves overwhelmingly, with very few exceptions. Uh, so uh, people see that. And, and so, the, you know, the, the profession of journalism is in something of a, of a transformation right now uh, because people have been saying for a while that, that Democrats have, because of their stranglehold on the media and journalism, they have destroyed journalism. And, and I think that's true. Um, and I know others yep. have been saying it for a while. So... Jude, thank you very much for calling in from Mississippi. Uh, Tim, I do want to talk some national security coming up here in the next hour. There have been some terrorist incidents, including one here in Minnesota. Guy screamed, Allahu Akbar, and stabbed a cop in the neck. We will talk about the Islamic State, terrorism, and much more coming up. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. All right, everybody, let's get into some national security. Hit it. Or... Let's just get to our guest. Hassan Hassan is a resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. He co-wrote the 2015 New York Times bestseller, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. Hassan, great to have you back. Um, I... Hassan, are you there, my friend? Yeah, I can hey, hear it. There we go. Thank you. Sorry, we had a little bit of, a, of an issue here for a second. Okay, let's talk. We have uh, ISIS blowing up the Al-Nuri Mosque in Mosul, but ISIS, of course, is saying that the U.S. did this. Who are people going to believe in the region, and what do you think all this means? Well, I think most people will believe that ISIS did it, uh, but uh, I think so many people uh, will think that... Um, it's the Americans and the Iraqis who did it, the Iraqi government. Uh, and I think this is what ISIS is counting on, uh, the fact that some people will continue to uh, think whatever the Americans are saying or the, whatever the Iraqi government is saying uh, are fake news. 
And what what do you think about the symbolism here? I mean, this is, for those listening, the Al-Nuri Mosque in Mosul, and there's this major military operation happening that's in the in the latter stages, the, the final stages, to take Mosul in Iraq away from the Islamic State. Uh, they're now in the old city on the west bank of the Tigris River. The Al-Nuri Mosque is where Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi announced the, the, the start of the caliphate, right? And so now that mosque is gone. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the, the mosque is where Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi gave his first uh, speech after the announcement of the caliphate. So it's symbolic, uh, and uh, the uh, ISIS, what, what ISIS is trying to do is basically to say, uh, we're not going to allow this mosque to be a place where uh, the Iraqi is going to announce uh, victory against us. So uh, they, blow it, uh, they blew it up. Uh, you know, I, for a long time I had no doubt in my mind that ISIS will eventually uh, destroy the mosque before uh, it runs away uh, from, uh, from Mosul. Now, the, the, but I didn't expect that they would do that. I expect they'd just use it as a hideout. Uh, and the, they fight it until the end, and, uh, you know, and, and the mosque would be destroyed because of the fighting. I didn't expect that they would blow it up. This is, this is really kind of um, uh, really ba- ba- looks really bad in the, in, the, in the region. If you can convince uh, people in the region and outside the region that th- uh, ISIS did it and, and did it because they wanted to, uh, uh, you know, they don't, want it at the mo- they don't want the mosque to be a place where the Iraqi government announces a victory uh, in the same place that al-Baghdadi announces uh, caliphate. I want to ask you about your piece that you wrote for the National um, uh, just uh, just this last week. Uh, you you write ISIL's discourse or, or the Islamic State's discourse is more common than you think. That is your title. Tell us how. Well, I think um, you know three years ago. Three years ago, uh, there was a campaign against ISIS to defeat the organization. I think there was a there was a chance to not only defeat the organization militarily, but also the ideology behind uh, ISIS. You know, ISIS controlled one-third of Iraq and half of Syria, uh, and, and they used the ideology of the kind of the caliphate, the Islamism, uh, and Islamist uh, symbolism uh, uh, represented by, um, by the caliphate. And uh, there was a chance. That chance, I think, was missed because there's, there's been so much denial about the ideology uh, of ISIS. Uh, you know, when people, for example, in the Middle East and outside say, this is not really uh, the Islamic State, you should not call it the Islamic State. Oh, Obama said it's neither Islamic nor a state, if I recall. Exactly. And I think that was a mistake. That, and I understand the reason why they did that, because they thought by calling it the Islamic State, you get people who are angry at what ISIS does, uh, blaming uh, Muslims for it. So I, I understand the concern, but I think there's a bigger gain. Oh, there, w- there would have been a bigger gain if you called it Islamic State because you would start to address the very discourse that brought us ISIS and brought us Al Qaeda, which is this uh, kind of uh, we in the Middle East and, and elsewhere, we need to live under an Islamic State. This is not uh, the default position of the Muslim society. It's a, a modern phenomenon that. You, that adopt this modern and uh, concept of state, and they want to turn this state into the Islamic State. And they use this concept to uh, rally people, mobilize people, and so on and so forth. So now ISIS is defeated militarily and say they will disappear at some point, right? That's not going to, the, uh, that's not going to be the end of ISIS, because you have already safeguarded the idea 
that brought uh, that brought us ISIS, and there was a chance three years ago to dismantle that idea and destroy it in the same way they destroyed ISIS militarily. We're speaking to Hassan Hassan. He is a fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy and co-author of ISIS Inside the Army of Terror, an excellent book that I have uh, read cover to cover, and I can recommend it to all of you now listening. Um, uh, You write in your piece in The National, uh, in the West, dealing with this aspect is complicated by rampant apologism that often paints actual Islamists as counterweights to terrorists simply because they reject the terrorist methods. But rejection of a group's methods should no longer be taken as a sure sign of moderation. Indeed, the old approach that failed to defeat al-Qaeda will fail to defeat the Islamic State. Muslim clerics in particular must make it their mission to mobilize their communities against extremism. Uh, tell me about the cler- you right here, the clerical lethargy towards extremism has been on display during Ramadan. Uh, tell me, Ramadan. Tell me about this Saudi-owned show and or, or the so- uh, soap opera and what's been going on with all this. Yeah, the, uh, there's a, a, a Saudi channel called NBC uh, that produced a, um, um, a soap opera during Ramadan, which is kind of a yearly thing. Uh, and they, uh, this year, they did it about women in ISIS, uh, how women join ISIS because they were they were they are lost, like you know, for lust, and they want to go and get married to some people there, and so on and so forth. Right, so the whole soap opera is really exposing uh, some aspects of the organization, the violence, and, the, uh, and so on and so forth. And for some reason, people fall, uh, thought this was offensive to, uh, you know, veiled women in general. That somehow you depict uh, Muslim women in general as lustful and so on and so forth. And I uh, and, and I noticed as, as a person from the region, the government like. People who were galvanized, they were really kind of up in arms almost against this uh, soap opera. But on the other hand, when we saw an attack against uh, Egyptian civilian or civilians, Christians uh, uh, killed in a bus or a church before that, we didn't see the same mobilization. You know, people thought it was uh, just, you know, another day of news, right? So I, I was like thinking, you know, when you post something about the massacre that happened in, uh, in Egypt, uh, on Facebook, you wouldn't get, you know, the uh, you wouldn't get a reaction from people. People don't don't bother, right? Uh, but there's so much talk and there's so much anger and rage against the soap opera that's not really even about Islam or Muslims. It's about ISIS. Uh, so I, you know, it just occurred to me that uh, uh, this is really kind of a challenge. Not only the apologism by people outside who say this is this has nothing to do with our religion and somehow we shouldn't even review it. Uh, but also people, ordinary people, who make it difficult for people uh, to denounce extremism because they would be called uh, some, you know, one thing or another. Yeah, I think one of the critical points you make in your piece, and we're speaking to Hassan Hassan, uh, co-author of ISIS Inside the Army of Terror, uh, one of the critical points you make, Hassan, is that uh, extremism is not just uh, extreme ideology that pushes people to violence, or rather the only extremists... Uh, are not those who are suicide bombers, fighters for ISIS, fighters for, you know, uh, Al Qaeda, Hezbollah, whatever the group may be, that there that Islamism ca- is is in and of itself an ideology that is at odds with Western norms and democracy, and political Islam is something that also has to be uh, taken 
up as uh, as as part of this debate. It can't just be well, we just you know no suicide bombing allowed. Okay, we can get most people to agree with that, but there's a much broader debate that has to happen as well about the limits of Islam and politics and Islamism. Absolutely, and I think um, academics bear some of the blame for uh, for glossing over these issues. Uh, I give you one example. There's a a famous cleric in the in the region. He's considered a mainstream cleric, but he says it's okay to blow yourself up. Uh, you know, if, if that means like killing Israelis, for example. He gave an, a fatwa for for Palestinians back in the day, like two decades two decades ago, and he didn't renounce that uh, fatwa. And then he expanded that fatwa into Syria in 2015, I think. Uh, he renewed that fatwa and said it's okay for Syrians to blow themselves up in as far as as long as they do it uh, within a group rather than just individually. And you uh, you see academics, American academics and others who call him a Democrat. Imagine they call. That are we ta- are you talking about Karadawi, by the way? Exactly. Yeah, I figure. So why do they call him a, a Democrat? Because you know, other than suicide bombing. Uh, Justifying suicide bombing, he's, a, he's an okay guy. He says, you know, you can adapt to modern worlds and so on and so forth. So he's not like a crazy guy, but he's, uh, he justifies all these things. So I think uh, there, there's, so, there's that trend of, uh, you know, as long as you, like you said, as long as you're not a Qaeda person or a, a ISIS uh, or, uh, you know, one of these, a, a part of these groups, then you're okay somehow. Can, can you just tell people so, real quick, I mean, you're, you're mentioning Sheikh uh, Karadawi, and because we'll always hear, oh, this is has nothing to do with Islam. All the violence is nothing. This, this is not just a mainstream guy. This is a guy with with a big following. Yeah, I mean, he has a show uh, that's probably more uh, more watched than, uh, say, uh, O'Reilly Factor or The Daily Show, right? So he's got millions millions of people watching this Muslim cleric who talks about how suicide bombing is okay. Yeah, and he's okay. He's still there, and he's protected in Doha, in Qatar. And uh, nobody, nobody can blame him because he says, uh, you know, I no longer uh, think there is a need for suicide bomb uh, for Palestinians to carry out suicide bombings because they have other methods now. So he doesn't say it's wrong or I was wrong uh, in issuing this fatwa. He just says it's no longer needed. Yeah. All right, Hassan, Hassan, everybody of the Tahrir Institute, uh, Hassan, great to have you as always. Thanks for making the time. Thanks a lot. Attack at a U.S. airport in uh, Michigan. Um, I may have said uh, I may have said Minnesota earlier in the program. Apologies for that. Um, Michigan. Uh, there was a there was a, an attack, a knife attack in back in uh, September of 2016. You will recall there was a a man who uh, stabbed nine people at a Minnesota mall and. The Islamic and ISIS-linked news agency, Amak, uh, claimed him as a soldier of the Islamic State. Um, but that was the wrong knife attack uh, that I had. I had mixed it up in my head for a second because, you know, knife attacks where people are yelling Allahu Akbar and are trying to kill as many innocent people as possible are becoming a far too common part of everyday life as we know. This time around, not in Minnesota, that was back in September, but in Michigan today, you have a Canadian man who uh, shouted um, Allahu Akbar 
initially reported by CNN, I believe, as a, a phrase in Arabic. No, no further information offered at the time. A phrase in Arabic, as though this reminds me of when they redacted the transcripts of the shooter in Orlando. You know, I, I pray. I, you know, I I pledge allegiance to blank. I am a soldier of blank. I'm doing this for blank. We're like, okay, ISIS, the Islamic State. But thanks for blanking out the transcript, uh, Obama administration, Department of Justice. That really that really helps people a lot for no reason at all. One of the, one of the dumbest things. I, I remember I, I was over at CNN, and they had some former FBI guy on who was trying to tell us that that was a good idea. And I'm like, well, redacting only makes sense if you're actually trying to keep the information out of public view. When you redact and literally every person with a third grade reading level knows what's being redacted, that's just censorship, right? That's nonsense. And he's like, no, no, this was this was a good policy. Was, oh, gosh. I, I wish I sometimes I, I wish I could be one of these people that just goes along the Democrat Party line. You just you get invited to fancier cocktail parties. You get bigger TV contracts that they'll throw you more money for your book advance. It's just better to. It's just it's just better financially to be a Democrat in media. It is, you know, it really is. Anyway, uh, not your problem though, team. Back to uh, back to the reality here of this uh, this attack. The good news, um, the good news here is that the officer is okay. He's out of the hospital. He's all right. So uh, let's let's just focus on that for a second. Um, the man Amor Fatawi of Quebec was taken into custody 49 years old and he a he attacked uh, he attacked a police officer at the airport in Flint Michigan um so and he yelled he attacked uh, Lieutenant Jeff Neville with a 12-inch serrated knife and he yelled Allahu Akbar he also asked the officers when he was being arrested why they didn't kill him from what i see here um so i don't know maybe this guy it looks like this guy wanted to become a shaheed wanted to be a martyr uh, what to say about this? Um, this is going to keep happening, and whether it's with knives or vehicles or firearms or explosives. Uh, this ideology, this uh, this subset of Islam, continues to plague the world. Um, it's not going away anytime soon. And uh, we we're just speaking to Hassan. I mean, I think it's. So worthwhile to have someone with Hadan's, Hassan's uh, background and credentials on the show, uh, because this is all he does is study these issues and and is from the region, uh, understands the Islamic faith and understands that you need to have a really straightforward conversation about how there is a terrorism problem within Islam. Right? It doesn't mean that Muslims are terrorists, but there's a terrorism problem from within Islam. Um, this this is just a, a a reality of the world we live in right now. And how do we deal with that? And this needs to be an open discussion. And those who try to shut it down and try to prevent a real analysis of the problem because of their own uh, political leanings, because of political correctness, because they view Islam as a minority and therefore per- a, a an ethnic minority in the U.S. at least, and therefore persecuted globally faith. I mean, there, there's all these different uh, ideological impulses that guide the discussion that really that really dictate the discussion about Islam that have nothing to do that should have nothing to do with it, but in this country they do. Uh, so we will see. Uh, this is not the only 
It should be noted the only uh, terrorist attack uh, of its kind in the last few days alone. They're they're following a similar pattern in the um, metro station in Brussels. I mentioned this to you yesterday. There's a guy blew himself up. Well, it turns out that he built a bomb and the bomb caught fire, but the bomb didn't go. Uh, This reminds me of the case that I worked at the NYPD back in 2010. Faisal Shazad, the Times Square bomber, built a car bomb. Just the car lit on fire. The, 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 he didn't get the the charge in the explosive to ignite. Uh, but that could have been catastrophic. And if this guy in Belgium had built his bomb differently, it would have gone. By the way, he ran over. He ran uh, over towards a soldier, and the soldier shot him and killed him. Uh, but he was a known extremist. Uh, another known terrorist. I can give you some more of his. Uh, background and details, maybe we'll get into that later in the show. And then you have this guy on the streets of France. This is just in the last few days, everybody. This guy on the on the Champs-Élysées, the main boulevard in Paris, runs his vehicle. He's got he's got uh, gas cylinders and and a and an AK-47 and a pistol in the car. Runs his vehicle into a van, trying to kill police officers. Police officers kill him, engage him. Uh, you know, I, I'm by no means am I making. Uh, you know, light of this. I'm trying to raise the alarm about this, but thank God these people are idiots and 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 you know aren't aren't good at what they're doing because we would have mass casualty attacks on our hands. I mean, thank God they're they're incompetent at their you know malicious and malevolent terrorism because if they had training, if they had even a, a modicum of tactical proficiency, we would have three mass casualty attacks on our hands. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. Welcome back, team. We have Hans von Spakovsky on the line. He is a uh, senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, former FEC commissioner, and DOJ lawyer, also author of the book, Obama's Enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department. Hans, great to have you. Hey, Buck. It's good to be talking to you again. Um, let's get into uh, this. You wrote for FoxNews.com here, I believe. The uh, the Supreme Court agrees to tackle the biggest election law case in years. Will it weaponize our federal courts? you got to walk us through this because this doesn't sound, I think, at first brush like it's as big a deal to some folks as it is. What's going on here? Well, look, uh, the the courts do get into redistricting when state legislatures uh, violate the Voting Rights Act. And what I mean by that is, you know, if race is the predominant factor they use when they draw up new districts, that, that they can't do. But they've always stayed out of claims that partisan redistricting is somehow unconstitutional. And there's good reason for that, you know. It's state legislatures that have the job of doing that. And while, while people might not like the way a particular uh, district is, is drawn or how the legislature does that, look, the legislators, they're accountable. You know, you can always vote them out of office. Uh, the courts have stayed out of that. This case out of Wisconsin, um, some judges there actually uh, threw out the state legislative plan the Republicans uh, drew up because they said, 
it was an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander because it favored Republicans too much. Well, the courts should not be in this. My, my gosh, how, how are you going to figure out how much politics is okay and how much politics is not okay under the Constitution? Currently, so, so for everyone, this is the Supreme Court case over basically over, over gerrymandering congressional districts. And uh, how does it currently work, Hans? For those listening, how, how do those how do the districts get drawn? Well, the, the that's the responsibility of the state legislators and the rules has put in when it comes to congressional districts is basically the populations have to be as equal as possible and race be the predominant factor in in drawing up the districts that that's about it all right well uh, where where does this go next well this is i actually am hoping the supreme court took the case uh because they're going to reverse hopefully the wisconsin court because this would open up if if they suddenly said that the court has jurisdiction to decide um, how much politics can be used in in gerrymanders. The courts will be flooded, flooded with lawsuits all over the country, and you're going to have the court stepping in and basically um, taking over what is the job of the legislative branch. And we've already got courts doing too much of that in too many other areas. We're speaking to Hans uh, von Spakovsky. He's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Hans, tell me about the uh, Trump administration's last-ditch last, uh, pitch here to the Supreme Court over the travel ban. What's going on? Well, you know, there have been two federal courts of appeals, the Ninth Circuit, the Fourth Circuit, that have ruled against the president. Um, on June 1st, the uh, U.S. Department of Justice filed a petition with the Supreme Court asking them to take up the case and overturn what those courts have done. Um, the court ordered all the briefs to be filed by Thursday. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, by, by uh, Wednesday, uh, today. And tomorrow, the Supreme Court will have its final internal conference. This, this is the meeting where they decide what, what cases to take up. So I, I actually think they'll take up the case, and we might hear as soon as Friday, as to them having taken the case and perhaps actually set uh, a date for arguments in the case. Uh, and Hans, I also uh, wanted to ask you about uh, whether this special counsel that's getting going now, uh, could, could they look into Hillary's email situation too? I mean, what limits the scope of the special counsel investigation that former FBI Director Robert Mueller is currently in charge of? Well, I'll tell you, that's one of the problems with these special counsels is there is no limit. Um, special counsels in the past have had a bad habit of constantly expanding their investigations, and they have, like, they have no accountability because they don't report to anyone. So, yeah, they, they could take another look at that. I doubt Mueller is going to do that. Why would he? Uh, uh, James Comey was his friend. Does he really want to... Uh, take a look at the uh, email scandal and come out and say, well, Comey was wrong, uh, Hillary Clinton should be indicted. And, in fact, the, the fact that they're friends is one of the problems. Well, that was my next question but, for you. I mean, yeah. is that a fair you're – you're, you're, I've always known you'd be a fair-minded guy, Hans. Is that a legitimate criticism of, of uh, Mueller's role and uh, an impartiality in all this? Yeah, in fact, look, there's an internal rule um, at the Justice Department, Department 
regarding conflicts. And I can tell you that if, this, if he was a regular uh, DOJ prosecutor and it came out, it turned out, that someone who was a potential star witness in his case, and that's James Comey, uh, was his personal longtime friend, that prosecutor would immediately remove himself from the case and the case would be assigned to a different prosecutor. That's the situation we have with Mueller, but he doesn't seem to be making any moves to do that. And you don't think that Rosenstein, there was some reporting about this. I, I know that I'm asking you to look in the future a little bit here, but you don't foresee a situation where Rosenstein would fire fire Mueller and shut this whole thing down. Or do you, know, you? I think that's what he ought to do, but I'm afraid he's he's not going to do it. I I, I kind of think he should do it too, and I know that it would drive would drive some people completely insane in the media, which would be part of the fun of it. But I actually think it would be the right thing to do. I think the special counsel was a terrible idea all along. I've been saying it all along. Well, no, you're right, and and look, here's the reason for it. Um, look, a federal investigation is a very serious thing, and you don't open up a federal investigation. Um, based on no evidence of any wrongdoing. You only open up a federal investigation if there's a reasonable, reasonable basis to believe a federal law has been violated. To date, there has been not one piece of evidence produced that there was any collusion whatsoever between anyone in the Trump campaign uh, and Russian officials. So how can you open up an investigation when there's no evidence of it? I don't know, but somehow this is where we are, and and I see this, I see this uh, spiraling out of control, or at least get, getting into a clearly political realm uh, very quickly. And and at that point, it, I think it'll be too late. But we'll have to see. Uh, Hans von Spakovsky, everybody, check out his latest at uh, Heritage at the Heritage Foundation. He also writes for FoxNews.com. Hans, as always, appreciate you making the time, sir. Sure, anytime. <sighs> I've been saying it, man. This the special counsel. This is uh, this is bad news. This is not going to end well. Uh, by the way, there was some testimony today down on uh, Capitol Hill uh, from uh, Jay Johnson, former DHS secretary. We'll, we'll get into that, and and also uh, the the updates that we have for you on the guy who was the shooter, uh, now deceased, uh, the shooter um, of the congressman at that baseball field in Virginia. They tried to, the, the would-be mass assassin. Uh, some other very good news for you, by the way. The the police officer, as I said, in Michigan, who got stabbed in the neck today is fine, but also Steve Scalise is in stable condition. He's he's going to make it. He's all right, in case you didn't already see that. So Representative Scalise is going gonna, is gonna, to, he's definitely going to live, and, and he's uh, in, in improving shape as, as we go forward here, which is great news. Lots of hearings going on today. You had the uh, House Intelligence Committee holding a hearing. You had the Senate Intelligence Committee also on the Capitol holding a hearing. Everyone's holding hearings. Uh, I guess this is a good usage of of time. Um, Not really, but here we are. So you had uh, former Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, um, who was, well, first off, you you had uh, Trey Gowdy ask him if he had ever seen collusion with Russia. This is the Guy who was running DHS, 
massive federal agency dealing with security, intelligence, and all the rest of it. Did, did you ever see anything about collusion with Russia? Here is the answer. Let's just get it on the record for everybody. At the time you separated from service in January of 2017, had you seen any evidence that uh, Donald Trump or any member of his campaign colluded, conspired, or coordinated with the Russians or anyone else uh, to infiltrate or impact our uh, voter infrastructure? Um, not beyond uh, what has been out there open source and not beyond anything that I'm sure this committee has already seen and heard before directly from the intelligence community. So he's got no, nothing that he's going to add there. Um, we're just going to just sort of say, yeah, sure, what's out there in the, in the open source. Okay, okay, all right, fair enough. Uh, no collusion that he can mention, you know, specifically no collusion that he he's going to talk about there. But now on the issue of whether votes, votes were altered, the whole notion of the election being hacked uh, is people when people say, did the Russians hack the election? I mean, that's a deliberate falsehood, right? Just just using the phrase the, the hacked election question mark and, you know. Because it raises in people's minds that there must well, if they're talking about all this all the time, there must have been something, right? They wouldn't be talking about a hacked election if there was no hacking of the election. Uh, but sure enough, when asked specifically about cyber intrusions, when asked specifically about uh, whether there was any election uh, ballots that were changed one way or the other, here is what was said. Not- I know of no evidence that through cyber intrusions, votes were altered or suppressed in some way. So no evidence of collusion, no evidence voting machines were changed. Now, at this point, you maybe ask yourself, why are we ha- why are we have so many hearings about this stuff still? Why are we still House Intelligence Committee, Senate Intelligence Committee? You know, maybe there's something else for them to be to be doing. I don't know. But the most interesting part of all this to me um, was when uh, when Jay Johnson said the following. Uh, Sometime in 2016, I became aware of a hack into the systems of the Democratic National Committee. I pressed my staff to know whether DHS was sufficiently proactive and on the scene helping the DNC identify the intruders and patch vulnerabilities. The answer, to the best of my recollection, was not reassuring. The FBI and the DNC had been in contact with each other months before about the intrusion, and the DNC did not feel it needed DHS's assistance at the time. Why? What, what is it about the DNC that makes it think that if it's, if it's suffering from a hack, if its servers have been uh, compromised in some way, what, why would we not? Why would you not, if you're the DNC, want the federal government to assist here? Do, do you really think your IT guy, whoever the DNC is paying, you, you think that's all? You, you know, assuming it's just one guy here, but obviously it's probably bigger than that. But you know what I mean? You think your IT department's really got this under control? I mean, if it's a sophisticated operation, which, which from what we know, it wasn't right. It was pretty straightforward uh, email phishing, is what we've been told. Um, but. If it was sophisticated or if you had major concerns, wouldn't you want the federal government to be involved? And and so that's that's what I would want to know. And, and I'm I'm uh, happy that the question 
was in fact asked why didn't and, and by the way it's been raised on this show i've i've had uh, callers members of team buck have called in and been like you know why didn't the dnc servers ever get examined by the federal government why didn't the fbi get brought in to look at this right this is a a major political party in an election year this, this is a big deal right and that's what we're told this is a big deal they're they're really concerned about this here is what uh, jay johnson said when asked about the DNC servers and why they weren't given to law enforcement. DNC never turned the server over to law enforcement. Um, So twice now you have said that uh, you could have camped out in front of the DNC. And I would say in defense of you, it wouldn't have made any difference if you had, uh, because they weren't going to give you the server. So if you're investigating either from a law enforcement or from an intelligence standpoint, the hacking by a foreign hostile government, wouldn't you want the server? Why would the victim of a crime not turn over a server to the intelligence community or to law enforcement? I'm not going to argue with you, sir. Uh, That was a leading question. He's like, yeah, I know. I mean, look, I I give Jay Johnson credit. He's He's giving an honest answer to the question, which is, yeah, man, I know. Crazy, right? Okay. So we established that that's strange. Now, I actually can't. Now, some of you may have in your head right now a, um, a, a, a an answer to that that is not just, I don't know. Uh, it does seem strange, which is why I think it's worth pointing it out. And that Trey Gowdy is pushing the issue clearly because of that. Uh, but. What is the rationale there? I I suppose it is possible that maybe the DNC just didn't want. I mean, if you're looking for the the plausible low impact possibility here, right? If if you want to make this the smallest thing possible, if you want to make this the at least of a, of an issue possible, you'd say, well, maybe the DNC didn't really want to get the federal government involved because once the federal government's involved, you know, they got our stuff and. But I mean, even as I'm saying that, I, I'm kind of wanting to refute my own statement, right? I'm like, well, what is that? Why not? I mean, don't you want to know what's on the, don't you want to know what's going on here? But you can make the case that it was, maybe it was just uh, incompetence or ineptitude with the DNC. Wouldn't be the first time, right? So that's not a huge shock. But I do think we have to at least hold out the possibility or or you have to at least be willing to think out loud about was there some other was there some other reason for them not sharing what was on the servers now i know that's a very leading question and i'm and i'm uh you know i don't like the like oh i'm just asking questions as a defense for all things but i don't know jay johnson can't come up with a rationale on the spot he's the he was a former head of department of homeland security under the obama administration i can't come up with a rationale for it I know that if I thought the servers had been hacked, I'd certainly want to give the FBI access to them right away if I was running a major political organization and thought the presidency was at stake, right? So what am I missing here? Um, it, it seems that there must be something uh, that, I, you know, unless you just want to go the incompetence and aptitude, which is usually a pretty safe bet when you're talking about any organization, quite honestly, but especially any any political organization uh, where there's maybe a lack of accountability. But I, I just, it's, it's, it smells funky. 
There's there's something weird about that a whole situation. And I think, you know, look, even Jay Johnson was saying, yeah, I think it's a little strange. I'm not going to lie. I uh, want to give you an update on the uh, the cong- the guy who was uh, shooting members of Congress on that baseball field last week. We know a little more about him. We also know more about his guns. And there's also a lot of fallout from the Castile video from yesterday. That and more coming up. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Shields high. I've been thinking more about the uh, Philando Castile case and, and the verdict that uh, came out that uh, Officer Yanez was not guilty, found not guilty by a jury of uh, second-degree manslaughter. Um, and there's there's been a lot of uh, a lot of backlash, and I, I've seen people on the right with whom I I usually uh, on a number of issues find to be very uh, astute, and we we tend to agree. Uh, I, I, well, I'm I'm torn on this, so I can't say that I strongly agree or disagree um, with conservatives uh, on this because I I, per, I go back and forth on it. My sense of it is that the officer was an error. Um, but the officer is not guilty of manslaughter. But what is the if he's not guilty of manslaughter? What what is he guilty of? Uh, should he just be uh, he's hurt? He should lose his job. Is that is that efficient and is that fair? Um, and people are pointing also at the uh, NRA right now, the National Rifle Association, which uh, has not been particularly vocal about this uh, situation and the dash cam video, which I played for you just a portion of it on the air yesterday, people are saying that they feel like the, they feel like this is a, a, a case of a, a lawful gun owner law abiding. Uh, well, he had marijuana in a system in, in the car, but uh, you know, somebody who was legally licensed to carry a firearm and by, by no means was a, was a threat and by no means uh, should have been, uh, should have been the subject of lethal force that day. Um, but they view it as somebody who was a concealed carry weapon holder who was shot by a police officer, and there's not the usual uh, not the usual degree of, uh, of outrage from major gun-owning organizations, most specifically the National Association. Um, and they're saying that this is because this is at least the sentiment that's out there among some, and being said outright by places like the Washington Post, right, that the NRA is being uh, quiet on this issue. And it's because that this involves an African-American who was, uh, who was shot and killed, that the concealed carry weapon a permit holder here is African-American, and therefore there's not the same. Now, I think that's, that that's unfair um, on, based on the facts of this case. You know, for example, I know that conservatives, when there was a, and I was one of them, but when there was a, a young woman who had been the subject of a robbery and drove into Pennsylvania with what was a, oh, sorry, drove into New Jersey with what was a legally purchased and owned firearm in Pennsylvania in her car and said to the officer, I have a, I have a legal firearm in the car and was arrested and was facing serious prison time. And she was, that was an African-American woman you know, there there was a rallying around around her uh, and saying, "Look, this was a 
uh, a lawful gun owner making a, a an understandable mistake without any criminal intent. You know, this was a no harm, no foul situation. New Jersey shouldn't have the insane laws it has about guns anyway. And, you know, they, 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 the district attorney should exercise discretion. And, and there was some, if memory serves, there was discretion exercised in that case. She didn't get off entirely, but but it was a much lesser I think she was initially facing something like this is a mother of two, by the way, single mother of two, African-American. And was facing like 10 years in prison for, you know, for having a, a, a handgun that was legal. And remember, legal in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, illegal in New Jersey. Now, some of you say, oh, Buck, you've got to obey all these laws. Well, OK, but I also think that some I think that a lot of handgun. I think a lot of state restrictions on on handguns and a whole bunch of state gun laws are unconstitutional. So, so you know, you can tell me obey the laws, obey the laws, but I also think they're unconstitutional, right? Yeah, I mean, you can you can tell me, well, uh, uh, abortion is legal, but I'll tell you, well, yeah, but it's it shouldn't be. It's, it's, the Constitution does not go... Anyway, I'm, I'm going to go down a, a whole other direction if I, if I stay on that. But uh, point here being... That I don't think that the I don't think that the somewhat tepid or or uh, not full throated response from gun owners about the Castile case is the result of some underlying uh, uh, underlying issue about race or racism. I just think that that there's still a little bit of a, it's still a tough area here in terms of w- how much blame could really be put on the officer. Look, first of all, he's found this officer is not guilty of any crime. Found in found innocent, or sorry, I should say, found not guilty, acquitted by a jury of his peers. So the officer stood trial, charges were brought, and he is not guilty. So, and we have this system we have for a reason. Uh, and that jury heard a lot of testimony, a lot of facts that I did not and that I am not I am not aware of. And if you weren't on that jury, you're probably not aware of them either. Now, I know a lot has been made of the video yesterday. I played for you that that part of it, the the crucial moments of the exchange. And people say that it's clear that Castile was not reach or rather Castile made it clear he was not reaching for his firearm. But OK, hold on a second here. Castile's saying, I'm not reaching for it, I'm not reaching for it. But if his hand, he's told the officer, I have a gun on me. And the officer says, don't reach for it. And if his hand is moving for anything at that point, saying I'm not reaching for it may not be enough. Obviously, wasn't enough. But, I mean, to an officer who's already thinks he's dealing with a robbery suspect, uh, and and is and is giving command. Don't reach for it. Saying I'm not reaching for it. If your hand is moving towards the weapon, what does the officer do? People who say that you have to wait for the the guy to draw. Uh, if you wait to see a draw, you're, you're, that's going to be the last thing you ever see. And a lot of officers I know will tell you that. Meaning that if you have to wait till the gun is pointed at you, um, you know, first of all. Especially, you know, you're talking about nine millimeter and, and someone's going to fire at somebody else. I mean, w- w- even w- would you be able to stop the threat before someone's allowed or someone's able rather to shoot at you? Even if you get off the first shot is highly questionable. Right. So uh, if, if you're saying if so, so that's where I think there's it's it's just not as clear to me as it seems to be to some that saying, I'm not reaching for it, I'm not reaching for it. If the hand is moving towards, he's established he's got a gun. If his hand's reaching for the gun, the officer is going uh, to respond to what he sees as the movement, perhaps, towards a weapon. 
He smells marijuana in the car. I mean, there's some extent. There are some extenuating circumstances here that that I think do make a difference. Um, so I don't think it's fair to 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 jump all over the NRA here and suggest that that uh, race uh, is the issue. Or race is the deciding factor in why you haven't had more uh, of an outcry as a result of what happened with uh, with Castile. Uh, I also I saw this uh, this Facebook post came up from an NRA uh, TV host, uh, Colleen Noir. Um, and I, I thought he, he made some very, uh, very astute points here. He, he writes on his Facebook page, remember, he's an NRA TV host, gun rights enthusiast, uh, and he's, uh, he's African-American himself. He writes, in the case of Officer Geronimo Yanez, I don't feel he woke up that day wanting to shoot a black person, However, I keep asking myself, would he have done the same thing if Philando were white? As I put on my Monday morning quarterback jersey, it is my opinion that Philando Castile should be alive today. I believe there was a better way to handle the initial stop. If he suspected Philando was a suspect in a robbery, there were ways to conduct that stop in a way that would have completely avoided the shooting altogether, but Yanez neglected to do so. Beyond that point, things get a little fuzzy for me. Um... So, and he goes into some more detail. He says, Philander should be alive today. In my eyes, Yanez screwed up big time. I don't feel he was out to take a black life that day, but it doesn't matter because his actions cost Philando his life. My legal mind can see why they couldn't get to manslaughter in the second degree based solely on the facts at hand. But Yanez walking away from this case, a free and clear man is just wrong. I'm, I'm pretty close to that in terms of where I am on this case. I don't think second degree manslaughter, uh, manslaughter rather in the second degree. Uh, it, well, I guess that's the same thing. Uh, I, I don't think that that's the charge here, but I also think the officer, the officer acted rashly, actually acted too quickly. Um, so, all right, um, we might uh, pick up a little bit of a, Trump is speaking right now in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. We'll give you a little bit of a. What's going on there? And then I want to talk to you about the uh, FBI's investigation into the uh, the shooter at the uh, congressional baseball practice. President Trump is in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He's got the crowd fired up. Let's join him live right now for a few. Go. I hope. The Republican Senate, if we went and got the single greatest health care plan in the history of the world, we would not get one Democrat vote because they're obstructionists. They're obstructionists. We wouldn't get one Democrat. If we came to you and said, here's your plan, you're going to have the greatest plan in history. And you're going to pay nothing. They'd vote against it, folks. <laughs> Every single vote. That's totally true, by the way. So we have a very slim 52 to 48. That means we basically can't lose anybody. And I think and I hope, can't guarantee anything, but I hope we're going to surprise you with a really good plan. You know, I've been talking about a plan with heart. I said, add some money to it. A plan with heart. But Obamacare is dead. But it is interesting how they say Donald Trump is not producing health care, not producing. So we've produced 
So much legis I don't think any president, it could be somebody, I have to be a little careful because they'll say, he lied. <laughs> so few presidents, few, just have to be a little careful because they'll say, headline, Donald Trump lies to the people of Iowa. I don't want to. <laughs> but very few have done what we've done when you look at the regulations, when you look at all of, you know, they were saying, but he didn't pass legislative bills. I think it's 38, and we're going to be talking about them. 38. And they, th if you listen to them, 38. But, 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 and some of them are really big having to do with regulation, having to do with lots of different things. But, we're working really hard on massive tax cuts. It would be, if we get it the way I want it, the largest tax cut in the history of the United States of America. That would be great. It would be huge for businesses. Uh, I really hope they can because deliver on that. Take a little more here before right we now, get back to our show. We are one of the highest taxed nations in the world. Really, on a large-scale basis, we are the highest taxed nation in the world. And we're going to get it down really low, okay? Real. I don't say the lowest, because there are a couple that are really down there. But that doesn't mean you want to be there. But we're going to have one of the lowest taxes from the highest tax, and we're working hard on it. And I think it's going to happen. And I'll tell you, I think healthcare is going to happen, and infrastructure is going to happen. You're going to have a lot of exciting things over the next few months. And I look forward to being able to produce it. Let's see what happens. So there, there we go. He's joining the president live there in uh, in Iowa. He's saying that that uh, look, healthcare is going to happen. Very important point. He says healthcare is going to happen. He says that uh, taxes are going to go down, and then he mentions infrastructure. Uh, but it's, it's it's an aggressive, it's an ambitious agenda, especially given that the the clock seems to be uh, running down a bit on what's going to be feasible before everything just turns into a giant uh, midterms squabble. All these members of Congress, I mean, if you think that there are Republicans in the Senate who are a little bit uh, weak on health care or, or on at least a, a conservative market-based reform of the health care system right now, uh, just wait until they're going to have to face a real Democrat opposition in their home state that's talking about how there needs to be more uh, or how, how there's just all these cuts to Medicaid are coming, you know, and, and that's free stuff is a uh, is a powerful motivator in politics. As you know, you don't you don't need me to tell you that. Uh, so free stuff is uh, very much a part of uh, what's going to come into the, the debate over health care, I think. And. Uh, so yeah, there's that. Uh, that's what I think is going to be. That's what I think is going to be part of the issue here, part of the problem. So uh, I don't know that he's going to be able to get done as much as as he says here. Um, I, I think that there'll be some pushback on healthcare. I think there'll be some uh, some pushback on uh, all the. Well, of course, the Democrats are on lockstep, and I, I should note that you know they were able to do. Obamacare without, you know, with just Democrat votes and all the way through, you know, they were able to uh, stay all unified as a party. I mean, give the Democrats credit, at least for that under Obama. 
you know, they didn't waver. They were party line all the way through. And it's just interesting to see, you know, you could talk about how Republicans, oh, there's a, a, a more broad ranging or wider ranging discussion and there's more uh, there's more room inside, you know, the, the, the tent for different ideas, you know, what, however you want to take. I mean, that's all well and good. There needs to be a health care bill that is passed, that is signed by President Trump and that is not uh, crappy. Or, or else I, I do think that they're going to pay a price in the midterms. And, and, you know, then we have to get into the rightfully so aspect of it. I mean, if you give one political party control of the House, control of the Senate, control of all this, uh, you would think you would think that they would be able to get some some critical things uh, done here and that there would be some major legislative achievements to point to. If there are not, well, then, uh, you know, are, are we really going to be in just better than Hillary? That's that's the phase we're going to be pushed into. It, it's better than Hillary. I mean, that's just not enough. Um, so anyway, we've got, uh, like I said, the president speaking in Iowa right now. He's getting everybody excited about about his uh, agenda. And uh, we'll see if he's able to follow through on it um the health care bill by the way what's i'm trying to see what the latest there, there's this secretive senate health care bill what's in the senate's i mean this is on political right now what's in the senate's secret obamacare repeal bill i don't know uh we're getting some some snippets some tidbits here and there this is what politico says uh the senate is on the verge of unveiling a sweeping obamacare repeal bill that would end Medicaid as an open-ended entitlement, roll back health insurance subsidies, and strike uh, multiple taxes from the Affordable Care Act. The bill is expected to repeal the biggest parts of the Affordable Care Act, including the individual mandate and the employer mandate. It is also expected to defund Planned Parenthood for one year by kicking the Women's Health Organization out of the Medicaid program. That provision could be dropped if Majority Leader Mitch McConnell needs votes from moderate Republicans who oppose it. So, okay, uh, they're going to they're going to get rid of the individual mandate and the employer mandate. They say here, defund Planned Parenthood for a year. By the way, that is going. The left will uh, that more more than the Medicaid provision. I think more than anything else, defunding of Planned Parenthood will. Uh, in, in rage, and, and yes, I should say it, uh, that it will energize the left if they really go, th- if they, assuming Republicans go through with this and hold the line. I'm, I'm not convinced that they will, um, but they're saying that that could be, that's, a, that, that's what may go. They're already saying that that provision could be dropped if Mitch McConnell needs votes from the Republicans looking at this. So, uh, we're going to get a draft. Oh, okay. Here we go. We're going to get a draft of the uh, Senate Republican bill tomorrow morning. So tomorrow night here on the show, I'll be able to tell you what I think of this this plan. Remember, this is the Senate's version. The House has already passed their version. This is going to be a Senate version of repeal and replace or whatever, the American Health Care Act, whatever we're calling it right now. And um, we, we'll see if it's if it's as good as as it should be. Thank you. 
the Freedom Hunt rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. So uh, the FBI released findings into the investigation of the uh, June 14th shooting in Alexandria, Virginia, and uh, hat tip my friend Charles Cook over at National Review for a, a very excellent breakdown uh, of this FBI report, um, because you saw the same thing happen, begin to happen at least, that, that always happens whenever there's a um, highly publicized shooting incident like what happened in Alexandria. And as I mentioned to you before, uh, Representative Steve Scalise is on the mend. Uh, he is going to be okay. He is go- he's making making his recovery. He is stable now, and he's beginning, I believe, uh, rehabilitation. Uh, and you know, I'm sure has he has a ways to go, but he's he's going to be okay. Uh, so that's that's a critical and very uh, happy news point from today. Uh, but the FBI report came out, and. You know, gun control on the under the previous administration was one of the issues that I have to say Obama was never was never able to put any political points on the board uh, with gun control. He just and and they tried so hard after uh, what happened in uh, in Connecticut, uh, Newtown. They they were pushing. For legislation, and I, I mean, I remember uh, Piers Morgan over at CNN would have these forums and put people like John Lott, whom I I always appreciate the work he does. He crunches the numbers, he looks at what's real and what's not in terms of gun control and gun legislation. But, you know, he put John Lott on on a show, and you know, the, and, a, and a friend of mine at the time actually was also one of the conservatives who would go on. And would they'd surround him with the family members of those who were killed in in violent school shootings, and that's that was that was how they were putting that TV discussion together, right? So, so you were in the position as a conservative who was arguing against Obama's uh, desired gun control uh, and and restrictions. You were a conservative who got to be surrounded with the family members of those killed in in violent school shooting incidents and uh, and making your case. I mean, it was just the the political theater and the the look. Let's just say it for call it for what it was. It was the, the leveraging of a tragedy for political ends, and and Obama did this on, on a number. You know, gun control is a uh, a very passionate issue on the left. Even for people who know nothing about guns, know nothing about uh, firearms, don't even know about gun laws, really. They just know guns bad. They just know guns bad. And, and as I tell everybody who will listen, because I know because I live in New York City and I know a lot of people that are very opposed to uh, to guns. And, and here in New York, I mean, guns are are treated as though they're, they're radioactive material. I mean, it's they're very hard to get. You have to go through this crazy permitting process. It takes months. It's expensive. It's onerous. And and it's intentionally onerous. And the laws are written in such a way that, you know, you, you don't know if you're going to be in compliance or not. And it's just, you know, you know if you, if you take it, you know, can you take it out of the city or, or does it have to only stay in the city? I mean, they're just... 
you, you got to deal with all this stuff with the, with the gun regulations here in New York. Um, and it's just insane. Uh, I mean, you don't really have Second Amendment rights in New York City at all. But when I start to walk, if you can get somebody who's not so frenzied in their hatred for guns, if, if I can sit them down and walk them through, well, look, you actually concealed carry holders, for example, are incredibly law abiding. And we have numbers on this. Right. And uh, and the lawful gun owners are are not a are not a problem of crime. In fact, they have been shown to prevent crime and that concealed carry permits going up in a, in certain jurisdictions, high crime jurisdictions has been shown in this. Now, I mentioned John Lott before more guns, less crime has been shown to be an effective deterrent to violent crime in an area. And, and you'll start I'll start to see the head nod. I'll start to see the yeah, you know, OK, I, I, I can see that. and I, I get that. And, you know, that 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 makes sense. And you, you make some headway. But that's actually that that scenario I'm talking about. That's really only on a person to person level. When I talk to someone who is at least open to the idea that all the Democrat talking points about gun control are based on emotion and quite honestly, ignorance of gun laws, the Second Amendment and the reality of crime and and gun ownership. What you get most of the time is it's it's similar to climate change, where people who don't know any science just know that climate change equals what the smart, good people uh, are concerned about. It's not about guns for them. It's about being the kind of person who doesn't like guns. And it's really also a lot of gun control arguments and a lot of the gun control efforts out there are pushed by a disdain for gun owners, this brings me to the, at the beginning of the show. I said culturally, much more of America is okay with Trump and what Trumpism stands for than the media ever wants to admit. And when it comes to guns, uh, the media and the and coastal elites and and the Democrat audiences that they're playing to view gun owners as a largely as, as a caricature. So it's not just when they say they're opposed to guns, they're also saying I'm not one of those people who likes guns, and by that they mean I'm not some, you know, banjo-playing, uh, NASCAR-watching, you know, hillbilly. That, that's what they're—that's really what, when you get down to it, it's a, it's a cultural signaling that occurs with opposition to, to guns. Because the moment you start to dig into the numbers about what does prevent crime and what doesn't, what's real and what's not when it comes to gun laws, and, you know, you, you look at these— this is very easy to do. Vermont, very loose gun laws, very low gun crime. D.C., New York City, Chicago, very strict gun laws. Very uh, Well, New York does not have very high gun crime. But uh, D.C. and Chicago, very strict gun laws and uh, still high rates of violent crime involving firearms. And people, you know, so you walk through this. But anyway, I'm just wanted to give I haven't really talked about guns much before here on the show. So I wanted to share a bit of where I where I come from. Uh, on this issue. And, you know, I've had training with firearms. I've worked in law enforcement and worked in intelligence in the past. And so uh, I have a, quite a, 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 I'm not somebody who's um, out of, at the range these days because I live in New York City, but I have a, a background, a, a professional background in, in firearms at, at some level. Um, okay. That brings me then to Charles Cook and this FBI report, uh, Charles Cook at National Review and, and him talking about how this debunks the gun controller's talking points. I just think that this is this is important to point out because you may be wondering, why am I not hearing 
more about how this uh, this guy who tried to shoot this would be uh, mass assassin Hodgkinson, right? The Bernie Sanders supporting left wing guy who staked out, who did surveillance of this baseball uh, diamond, you know, who who did all this stuff. Um, why uh, why is it we're not hearing? More about how if we had just kept if we had just kept a gun out of his hands, we could have stopped this from happening. You may be wondering. There are some who make the argument, of course, right? And, and Terry McAuliffe, as soon as this happened, as soon as it happened, before we knew anything, it just just shamelessly, the governor of Virginia shamelessly, it makes it a, a, a gun control issue. Uh, here's what the uh, FBI though tells us in their investigation. Quote, the investigation thus far has determined that Hodgkinson purchased his SKS 7.62 caliber rifle in March 2003, a 9mm handgun in November 2016, legally through federal firearms licensees. The investigation has determined that there were cartridges found to be chambered in the SKS rifle, and the FBI's evidence response team found 9mm and 7.62mm shell casings on scene, the SK, SKS rifle was modified to accept a detachable magazine, and the original stock was replaced with a folding stock. So Hodgkinson bought the guns. He bought this stuff in Illinois, um, where he was a resident, and he bought them legally. And he went through the processes. He went through a federal. There was nothing in his background to prevent him from buying a gun, and he bought them in Illinois. Now. If he wants to take guns across state lines illegally, i.e., if he's going to break the law, which what he did before he, you know, was trying to assassinate Republican members of Congress, you know, playing softball or playing baseball in the morning, uh, he's willing to break the law. So, so adding another law, what, what are you going to make it a, you know, a, from a ten-year sentence to a twenty-year sentence? I mean, you're just going to try to add stricter and harsher penalties. The guy bought his guns totally legally. Another point that came up here is they say, well, you know, he was accused of domestic violence some years ago. And there's, uh, you know, on the books, you can't be a control. You can't be addicted to a controlled substance and a legal drug user and and, uh, own a gun legally. This is under federal law. You can't have been convicted of a crime of domestic abuse. But you'll notice the key word there, convicted. To be accused is not the same as to be convicted. And if we are going to have even the pretense of due process rights in this country still, that means that you have to actually be convicted of a crime before you can lose uh, any of your rights. He was Hodgkinson, before he went on his attempted mass murder spree and before he was shot by a couple of brave D.C. cops, uh, hadn't been convicted of hadn't been convicted of domestic abuse. So so that doesn't once again it's on the books. You can't own a gun if you're convicted of domestic. But he hadn't been convicted, so he bought them legally. And Illinois, it should be noted, has strict has strict gun laws. So he bought guns legally in a strict state when it comes to uh, comes to firearms. By the way, also I, I saw all these reports saying he had an M4, and and I don't know how this got out there, but. You know, an M4 would be uh, a fully automatic, at least fully automatic capable uh, rifle. And it turns out he had an SKS, which is just a semi-automatic rifle. 
And it's not an AK-47 variant. People keep saying AK-47 AK variant. It's like AK-47 also has the capability to be fully automatic, which it is very difficult, as I'm sure many of you listening know and probably know much better than me. I'm sure there are a few of you listening, um, guessing, who, who have the permits necessary. But to get a, a fully automatic weapon legally is like really is really tough. You got to go through a whole process um, to do that separate process at the federal level to get the uh, uh, permit for a fully automatic weapon. Um, so Hodgkinson's SKS was not able to take the high capacity magazines that Democrats have been saying, oh, we need to get rid of those. Um, it had an internal 10 round magazine box, as Charles points out here in National Review. So uh, there's just there's nothing here in this guy's background that any of the gun any of the major gun control proposals that are out there would have done anything to do to stop. He passed a background check. He bought them legally. They were legal firearms. There's nothing in his. They didn't miss anything. There was nothing pending against him. Uh, this guy was just a lunatic who was going to go out and shoot some people for politics. In this case, because they were Republicans, because he had internalized a lot of the vitriolic left-wing propaganda about Republicans in the administration. Now, the onus and the responsibility for this these terrible acts is, of course, first, foremost, primarily, and uh, almost entirely, I would say, on the shooter. But there is an environment around him, and I think that things have gotten so heated, as I said to you before, that it's worth bringing up. But I just I'm I'm trying to note here the reason you're not hearing more about gun control is that this is a this is a case of you can either advocate for a gun ban meaning no one can own guns in this country which is just unrealistic right you can advocate for that or you can deal with the realities of the gun laws that we already have which have checks in place and do have uh, hurdles that prevent criminals from getting firearms, at least legally. But there's no proposal the Democrats have come up with that would have stopped Hodgkinson from getting guns. And when they talk about restrictions on uh, on gun owners and gun ownership and just a little bit here, a little bit there, um, that's just a it's a nonsensical position because it wouldn't even stop the events they're using as the justification for the enhancement of the gun laws. Uh, so. That's just I, I wanted to point. That's why you're not hearing about it, because this is not a good case to push gun control with because of all the legalities that have been shown here by the FBI. Team, I think it's only fitting to close out the show by talking about how it is the summer solstice. Uh, the start of summer is today. Solstice, by the way, means sun stands still. It's the longest day of the year because the sun is directly above the Tropic of Cancer, as you all know, as you remember from uh, science class, uh, hashtag science the Earth is not just rotating around the sun, but also is tilted on an axis, and that axis is responsible for the northern and southern hemispheres getting more or less direct exposure to the sun, depending on the time of year. 
Um, so I just wanted to mention as well that this is a, a period of, historically speaking, a period of some great partying, my friends, uh, for the Greeks. It was, uh, in some ancient Greek calendars at least, it was the first day of the year and the festival of the god of agriculture, Cronus. That uh, is the festival of Cronia. Uh, in ancient Rome, it was the festival of the goddess of the hearth, uh, Vesta. And so the festival is called Vestalia. And if it was the uh, in December for the winter solstice, right, there are two solstices, uh, summer and winter. Uh, that was the feast of Saturnalia, which, of course, honored the god Saturn. And uh, the Romans celebrated that as, as well as uh, paying homage to Mithra, who is the ancient Persian god of light. It's also, for uh, those of you out there wondering, the Feast of St. John the Baptist in just a few days, June 24th, uh, which could be one of these instances, historically, of where pagan rituals and holidays uh, coincide, and not by accident, with the uh, holidays on the Christian calendar. So it is indeed summertime. I hope you uh, are excited and have some some great things planned as we go into the summer months here. I'm excited for what we're going to be doing on the show, uh, planning to uh, work on a bunch of special history segments and more along the lines of what we talked about uh, or did last week with the backstory on witch hunts in Salem. So uh, going to be experimenting with all kinds of interesting programming here in the Freedom Hut in the months ahead, which I am uh, personally very excited about. Uh, always let me know your thoughts when you get a chance, if you don't mind. At uh, You can go to BuckSexton.com for uh, news throughout the day, but also on iTunes, Buck Sexton with America Now. Click subscribe on that podcast. Have a great summer solstice, my friends. Uh, enjoy the start of summer, and until next time, shields high.